What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Arnie's. We are two rogue nightmares with nothing better to do. I'm Matt Johnson, and I need to do some research to find out how to make my hair as beautiful as dreams. And I'm Austin Terry. And rest in peace, Gregory, you beautiful bastard. On today's show, of course, we are talking about Netflix's new series, The Sandman. But before we get into all that good stuff, Austin, what dream is Keith trapped in today? Well, I'm happy to report he's trapped in a dream and not a nightmare, Um, but he is just rolling in the beautiful sands of Tatooine because he loves that planet so much. For me, it would be a nightmare, but for him, it's a dream. You kind of nailed it. I feel like Keith's dream every night is just that he's running through Tatooine with a, with a laser sword in hand and, I don't know, little Annie's his best friend. <laughs> well, he's, he's got a laser sword in one hand and then he's holding Obi-Wan Kenobi's hand in the other. Whoa, so you're saying that in his dream he killed Obi-Wan? He won the fight? No, like Obi-Wan is holding his hand as he guides oh, him. Oh, I thought you meant his severed hand. <laughs> I thought he cut it off. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, Keith, well, sleep well, you sweet boy, and we will see you next week. But... Without further ado, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. The Sandman and Neil Gaiman first graced the world back in 1989 and ran for 75 issues under the DC Comics and Vertigo banners. It tells the story of Dream, the king of dreams themselves, as he escapes captivity and returns to both the waking and dreaming worlds, of course, only to discover they are not as he left them. Mainly due to escape nightmares, one of which was Dream's greatest creation turned serial killer, his tools being stolen, and the squabbling of his other siblings, The Endless. Along with other works such as Watchmen and The Dark Knight Returns, The Sandman is often considered to be one of the greatest comics of all time. Because of this, several attempts have been made over the years to adapt this work into live action, but it has always been deemed unadaptable and unfilmable due to the complexity. In 2013, we came pretty close to having Joseph Gordon-Levitt star in an adaptation, but even with that star power, it fell apart. Since then, we have seen Audible release an adaptation with an all-star cast, including James McAvoy's Dream, and we have seen other characters from the series go on to their own stories, such as the Fox and later Netflix crime procedural Lucifer, which was based on Gaiman's version of the character. But we still never got the main character of Dream starring in his own property. Until now. So, Austin, do you have any experience with the Sandman? And let us know your non-spoiler thoughts on this television adaptation. Yeah, I don't have any experience with the titular Sandman character itself. Uh, This is, of course, a comic arc I've always heard about, but for whatever reason, have never found the time to actually sit down and read. Um, Some of the side characters I know, particularly Constantine, just from their involvement with Justice League Dark and stories like that. But overall, this was a whole new kind of world for me to discover in this show. And kind of going into the show itself, I think this might be one of the best, like, new Netflix originals they've put out in a long time. It's incredibly well acted. The visuals are very stunning. The only thing that I was surprised about with the show is it's not really a, a full narrative story. Like the goal they set up for the dream character in, in the first episode, he accomplishes halfway through the season. And that feels like season one. And then we go into a, a totally new story, which feels like it, it could have almost been season two. Um, there are characters that come in and out of the show that I thought would have played larger roles. There's characters I was excited to see and explore, and, and they exit a lot sooner than I was expecting. None of that is a bad thing. It's just it's just stuff I wasn't expecting going into the show. It does stay very scary throughout, which I thought was very fun. Um, so overall, I had a great time with it. There were just some unexpected things with this show that I didn't think was going to happen in the way they chose to tell the story. Yeah, I would say my experience was pretty much the same as yours. I've never gotten around to the Sandman series. Uh, I was just telling Austin before we started recording today that it's literally been in my Amazon queue for like years at this point. I don't know why I've never pull the trigger on it. I have no good reason. I've always been excited to read it, just never got, never been able to get started. So I'll definitely have to do that now that we've watched the series so I can kind of get ahead of whatever potential uh, follow-up seasons come out. I'll say after finishing the show, it has now been added to my Amazon queue as well. Nice. So Nice. I like the sound of that. I like the sound of that. Um, so yeah, my experience like Austin comes from um, other characters that have perhaps interacted with Sandman at various points. Same thing here with Constantine, very familiar with that in Justice League Dark. So whenever Sandman kind of comes up or Constantine goes into one of those stories, I am a bit more familiar with it. And then the main thing for me is I'm a diehard fan of Lucifer, the show that I mentioned in the preamble there. It's like I always like try and recommend shows to people that are those kind of like long running crime procedural shows. I mean, I know a lot of people love their Law and Orders or their NCIS, but I, I just love this one. This is like comfort food for me. It's just a really fun 
mystery crime show. And I just love the element of the main character is Lucifer himself um, and just kind of uh, playing with religion in that way was super cool. And there's a lot of stuff similar to that in The Sandman that they kind of play with that interesting history and religion at times. So I love Lucifer. So I was aware that that was Gaiman's version of the character. And whenever they were announcing this show, that they were going to, you know, use that same version, but obviously cast somebody else because the Tom Ellis version of Lucifer is very different from Gaiman's version. Although I did find it interesting that Neil Gaiman said that they did try to find a way to cast Tom Ellis as Lucifer in this show, but they couldn't figure it out because that show kind of deviates and it tells its whole story. Basically, like eventually in a later story, the Sandman returns to hell and Lucifer Morningstar isn't there. That's because Lucifer left to go, you know, live a mortal life on Earth. And that's where, like, the show Lucifer kind of picks up and tells its own story. So it wouldn't have really made sense. It would have been like this weird prequel with our, with that old version of Lucifer and then later a sequel. So I'm, I'm glad they went with Gwendolyn Christie. It makes more sense. Anyway, on to my thoughts on the show, having not read the comic just like Austin. I really enjoyed it. Um, I, I basically echo every sentiment Austin mentioned. Whenever this show was starting out, I was like, oh, wow. Um, this is certainly complex and very dense, but I'm able to follow it very easily. I wasn't expecting that. That makes it all the more exciting. And as those initial episodes built up, I was like, this is, yeah, I'm really, really loving this. And I would say I loved it all the way through episode six. And that comes with a caveat that I won't spoil anything, but like Austin said, the ending of episode five, which is exactly halfway through the season, is the end of a story. And then episode six is kind of this weird, random, one-off transitional story. And I recognize that it had nothing to do with what we had just watched, but it was so engaging and fun that I was like, okay, this is great. And then, unfortunately, episodes seven through ten, while there is still, of course, connective tissue to what they set up in the original episodes, I it was a pretty far cry, I would say, from the quality personally, like in terms of how much I enjoyed it of those initial episodes. I just thought seven through ten were not anywhere near as good, which is unfortunate because if it had been the other way around, at least the show would have left a better taste in my mouth and it didn't quite hit the landing. And it's really interesting, Austin, to talk about that because it's like the funny thing about this show is it's like so faithful to its source material, I guess, because it's so clear to me, at least, that episodes one through five was the first Sandman comic book arc, right? And then the rest was the second Sandman comic book arc. And they didn't really bother when they adapted it to TV to make any sort of transition. (laughs) It's just like the first half is clearly Sandman's first story that came out, and then it's his second story, and they have nothing to do with each other. (laughs) And they didn't really try and finesse that a little bit, which was kind of disappointing. I totally agree. I think actually, if you look at like the rating by episode, it goes down pretty drastically as you get to the final. So I I think universally people are feeling the same way. Um, For me, the way I kind of looked at it is episodes one through six is like HBO Max and then seven through 10 is the CW. Like it just that's the (laughs) that's the drastic in quality that you feel between the two stories. I think all stories are very well acted and performed well. It's just the actual content wasn't as engaging as the first few episodes, especially coming off of episode five, which I can't wait to talk about because that might be one of the scariest things I've seen on TV in a while. Mm -hmm. And then going into episode six, like you said, was a very fun transitional story that was very engaging. So the content, I think, was what was really lacking in the second half of this show. Definitely. So I definitely I would still recommend this show. I had a great time watching it. And even though I didn't like as much the uh, second story, the main story they told, I do appreciate that I don't know. It makes me wonder what follow up seasons could be. It's like, are they going to be multiple stories in one? Like it's going to be like one larger narrative just with like multiple shorter stories in it. If that's the case, that sounds exciting to me. I just hope that going forward, they find a better way to kind of transition between said stories, because that was really my only complaint here in this first season is they didn't nail that. But I know it sounds like we're in the same boat. I mean, this is a definite recommendation for me. I think people should check this one out. I'd highly recommend it as well. And I think where they left us in the cliffhanger for season two, I'm excited to see that as well. So they leave it in a really good place, I would say. For sure. I completely agree. All right. Well, uh, this is going to be a tough one because there are a lot of spoilers to talk about and lots of uh, intricacies and interesting things I know that I want to talk about. I'm sure Austin wants to talk about. So if you have not watched The Sandman over on Netflix, we highly recommend you go check it out and then come on back to hear our spoiler talk. 
And as always, if you don't really care about spoilers and you just want to listen anyway, get ready. We're going to get into it. And Batman is not in this show. That would have been weird. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, which Batman should have been in the show, do you think? It's got to be Michael Keaton. He's the future, right? Oh, no. All right. Welcome to Spoiler Territory, everybody. Austin, how about, as always, hit me off with the crew side of our opening convo here. All right. So The Sandman Show is developed by Neil Gaiman, David S. Goyer, and Alan Heinberg. Gaiman is an author known for American Gods, Stardust, Coraline, Good Omens, and several notable comic runs for various DC characters. Our score for the show is composed by David Buckley and, of course, based on The Sandman by Neil Gaiman, Sam Keith, and Mike Drinkenberg. That's right. We've got a big cast here. We have Tom Sturridge as a dream, a.k.a. Lord Morpheus, Boyd Holbrook as the Corinthian, Vivian Achiempong as Lucien, David Thewlis as a John D, Kyle Ra as Rose Walker, Razan Jamal as Lita Hall, Eddie Karanja as Jed Walker, Mason Alexander Park as Desire, Stephen Fry as Gilbert, Jenna Coleman as Joanna Constantine, Mark Hamill, our boy, as Mervyn Pumpkinhead. I did not know that at all. <laughs> yeah, I, I knew I knew that you wouldn't know it, and I was excited to say it. <laughs> With Patton Oswalt as Matthew the Raven and Gwendolyn Christie as the Lord of Hell, Lucifer Morningstar. So, Austin, any thoughts on the cast or crew side? Any big highlights can be positive or negative? I think for a role as important as Dream of the Endless, um, Tom Studage really has to work for you in this show. And I thought he knocked it out of the park. Um, I thought he was great. He really is kind of our lens into this crazy world. And so I thought he was fantastic. And maybe this is me kind of being biased because it's the character I'm the most familiar with in the show. But Jenna Coleman as Constantine thought she was fantastic. And I only wanted to see more of her. So I hope she has a bigger part in season two. Completely agree with those picks. Although I want to get I want to get it out of the way right off the top, Austin. Tom Sturridge, how is it that in every single scene, he looks like he's either crying or about to start crying? (laughs) Did you notice this? His eyes always look like tears are about to come out of them. (laughs) And I think that's a conscious choice by him, too, because he sees his role as a servitude to humanity. And now that he's lived among them for so long, they've kind of broken his heart. So I think he's just so disappointed throughout the show. That's why he looks like that. But I agree. The look he has on his face like makes you just want to give the guy a hug. Truly. And I mean, it can't be, I mean, stated how much like his voice is just perfect, I think, for a character like this. Just especially when he's talking like as a king to his servants like that. Yeah, he's very commanding. So I'll do I have one main highlight and then I have one just quick one I'll, I'll throw out there. And I guess it's kind of a backhanded compliment. I don't mean it to be. But whenever I heard that Patton Oswalt was going to be the voice of Matthew the Raven, who is kind of like, you know, dreams. I don't know, not assistant, but I guess just kind of partner or friend or whatever you want to call him. I was like, okay, that seems like a very big difference from like the kind of voice that Dream has. And then, oh, we're going to do Patton Oswalt. But I actually thought he did a great job. I thought he kind of reeled it in, made it feel real. And I ended up really liking their back and forth. I thought he was great. And the first time you hear his voice, it's like, oh, that's Patton Oswalt. And then you just forget about it for the rest of the show because it feels very natural. Definitely, definitely. Um, And then my main one, just from strictly a performance standpoint, because I thought it was so good, and I know without question, I have to imagine we're going to talk about uh, this later, Austin, because we could have gotten more of this character, or at least I thought we were, but that was David Thewlis as John D, who I thought was a terrifying character, although I don't know if I can call him a villain. Uh, Just a really good antagonist, I guess I would say, to Dream, our protagonist, of course, but Really like this character. Obviously didn't agree at all with what he was doing, but I found it extremely fascinating. And this is, now that we're in spoiler territory, I guess we can say, I really thought they were doing a great job of setting up a main villain for somebody as powerful as a dream. You could actually believe how uh, John D could stand up to him, I think, in large part because David Thewlis is so good in the role. And then in episode five, you know, at the height of his power, so to speak, Dream beats him. And then in the last, like, five minutes of the episode, they just wrap that up and he gets put into his eternal sleep in the institution and we'd never see him again. Like, I at least thought, oh, okay, I guess dream one for now, but he'll come back. And yeah, no, he didn't. So I was a little bit disappointed in that, but I can't deny that the performance was pretty awesome. The performance for sure. And and what you're calling out about the way the John D character exits the show is 
it happens with a lot of characters in this show. We're like, yeah. even with Constantine, he's like, we have we have business in the future. It's like, oh, cool, she'll be back. And then she exits this whole season. Same with John D. When he puts him to sleep, um, my wife was like, that's a terrible idea. He's going to get out and be a villain later in the season. And then you never see him again. So totally agree with that. I also agree with what you said about the character. He definitely is in a villainous role, but he's also born into this like magical stuff and he didn't really choose any of it. And he just kind of cares about this Ruby. So I, I liked all the stuff they did with this character because you see him as a villain, but then sometimes you can kind of see the humanity behind some of his decisions too. All right, everybody, you've heard our thoughts on the Sandman, but I'm curious what the critics had to say. So the Sandman currently holds an approval rating of 87% over on Rotten Tomatoes with an average rating of 7.7 out of 10. The website's critical consensus reads, while it may hold few surprises for fans of the source material, the Sandman's first season satisfyingly adapts an alleged unfilmable classic. Praise went toward the casting, production design, costumes, faithfulness to the source material, visual effects, and performances, mainly for Tom Sturge and David Thewlis, while criticism was aimed at the story itself, transition between storylines, and the most common complaint I could find was for the pacing of the show. I think I totally agree with those complaints. Um, it's funny with some of these like unfilmable comic classics, because it, it seems like the film material that has worked has been the ones that say so true to the source material. Like, the Watchmen movie and now like this show. So maybe that's the only way to do these types of stories is you have to kind of go page for page and follow the story. Right. And I, I'm someone that I can appreciate being faithful to the source material. And it, I guess it's tough to comment on because like we both said, we haven't read the Sandman, but I did see some interesting conversations on Reddit and online. People were like that had read the, the series. They were like, I wonder if maybe they could have benefited from getting a showrunner or somebody involved that loved the Sandman, the story, but was willing to adapt it more. Like, I feel like there's a way they could have done this first season, like we said, Austin, that maybe you do, even though John D is only the villain, I guess, for that one story, maybe you could have changed things to make him the main villain of the whole season. Maybe you could have found a way to have Lucifer stick around outside of just one episode. Same with Constantine. Maybe you make Constantine, like, um, dreams, like, you know, uh, partner in crime, so to speak, while going up against this threat. So I know those are just a few examples, but I, I did... I did find it interesting that for some people, the faithfulness of the source material was cool, while some were like, I feel like they could have just, you know, taken the the bones of the story and found a way to adapt it more. And I think that kind of ties into the pacing issue, because like you said, that, that's probably the biggest issue for me with the show. And it is weird, like you said, it's like they spend time and we invest emotionally into a lot of these characters, particularly Constantine, for example. And I would say maybe even like all of the patrons of the diner in episode five. But then, yeah, they're just Every single one of them, for the most part, is gone after one episode. And I love that we got to meet them, and I'm sure in follow-up seasons they will return. But it, it was a little bit strange, and it did kill the pacing at times. Well, and another great example of that, too, is the Desire character. Because at the end of episode five, they oh set God. them up to be yeah. the main villain for the second half. They tell you the plan, and then you don't see this character until the finale. Like, I f totally forgot Desire was in the show. That was... Oh, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that. I can't believe I forgot that. That... Yeah, that might be the most egregious example. Like, literally, they show us Desire, I think, at the end of maybe... It's the end of five after he beats John. Right. And then you see the plan in the next episode with right. um, They just keep showing Desire, like, planning, and it's like, oh, okay, I guess Desire is going to be the actual main villain. And then you're right, it's like literally just the last 10 minutes of the finale, and I guess if there had at least been a confrontation, it would have been satisfying. But then they basically just reveal that, oh, Desire's plan was to impregnate uh, Unity while she was in the, you know, had the sleeping sickness while Dream was captured so that she could pass the vortex to her ancestor. And I was just like, well, why is that so devious? And it's like, oh, I was going to make you spill family blood. And I was like, is that a rule that they can't do that? Like, I don't know. That must be a rule that just didn't get explained. So yeah. if they had explained the plan better, maybe it would have felt more devious. Um, I do totally agree with the pacing critique, but I do think where they chose to put certain episodes was smart in this show. Because there are there's one episode in particular, episode five in the diner, that's extremely dark, um, very hard to watch. And then I think right after that is the one with like the century storyline. Yeah, and it's it a very fun episode. So going from that to a happy episode was, I thought, a good choice for the season. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. I think the best example of pacing is that one, because 
While they didn't transition well at all from the John D. story to the Rose Walker story, they did give us a good, it's going to be a weird thing to say, they gave us a good transitional episode. I just wish that that episode had more to do with John D. and Rose Walker, so there was like a nice, a good transition. It was just a random story, although, like I already said, that it was a random story that might have been my favorite of the entire season. That's my favorite episode, especially getting another endless involved in death and then seeing this bet that he made in like 1439 and going through every century was so cool, I thought. And I guess it did have like some symbolic or character arc type uh, ramifications. Like I did actually appreciate and I guess it must have been like episode seven and I guess even towards the finale to a degree, Dream does seem a bit more uh, empathetic to humans in general. Um, and I think you could maybe make the argument that's because he finally acknowledged his friendship with Hob Gadling at the end of episode six. So maybe the reason that he's a bit more, I don't know about kind, but maybe uh, sympathetic and willing to help humans is because, you know, he finally acknowledged a friendship that he has with one. So I guess that stuff kind of worked, but it just wasn't enough transition wise for me to appreciate those uh, like second half batch of episodes. I totally agree. And usually we're better about this transition, but I think we're already in our freeform discussion. Yeah. So we can kind of keep going with this broader conversation. But this does at points feel like a collection of stories instead of a longer narrative. And we've talked about how episode six is our favorite episode, and it doesn't really have anything to do with the actual like broader overarching A plot. Do you think a better choice for this season would have been like anthology type setting where just Dream is involved? Or do you wish the overarching narrative with John D had been the entire first season? Yeah, it's a tough call. I mean, it sounds like shitty to say. I think I, I preferred the way they did it here. I just wish they had done what they did way better because I liked how this had kind of an anthology like slash like short story collection feel like you said but it also was always like furthering the main plot I guess like for example um, whenever they set up that Dream's goal is to retrieve all of his tools I like that episode three was just about him working with Constantine to get his sand back and that felt like its own story and then that's wrapped up and then episode four is so like Okay, time to get my next thing. I got to go. I have to go to hell and confront Lucifer Morningstar to get my helm back. So it's like it is all part of the same story, but it felt kind of like an anthology because he's going to completely different places and interacting with completely different characters episode to episode. And in episode four, I think they did a good job of telling you a, a story centered on humans uh, and then cutting back to a story where you're in hell with Dream. Like yeah. the way you're learning about John D and, and how he is, like it was very scary and very interesting. And, and they actually found a good way to get humans involved in that episode, I thought. For sure. And so while all of that was great, I do think the one thing that they maybe could have done better is just to have like one main villain thread going through all of those stories, because we have three. We have John D in the first half. We have the Corinthian in the second half. And then we have Desire, who never fully gets used well in either half there it, it's just so weird that desire popped up at the end of episode five halfway through to be like i'm gonna get you dream and then clearly it's like oh no they actually just want to save desire for season two so why did why did we spend all this time with them <laughs> um but it is funny austin because like, as i'm saying that out loud I, I guess i kind of realized well i think you know what netflix thinks is that the corinthian was their main villain i mean being the one character that was in most of the episodes, Boyd Holbrook is one of the few actors credited as like a main performer. Only like a few of them are. Everybody else is considered like co-stars or guests because they kind of come in and out. So maybe this is a, like a good spot to talk about the Corinthian real quick. Do you think that that's what they were trying to do? Like, was he supposed to be the main villain of this season? I love Boyd Holbrook. I thought he was great. But again, I feel like we could have used maybe just a little bit more and maybe pace that story a little bit better. Yeah, this character is weird for me because I thought the performance was great. But every time Dream says, like, you're my my ultimate creation, I just didn't feel that because yeah. he's really a side character for the whole show, except for episode nine and ten. We don't get any time with him to see what he was doing during the hundred years. They just kind of cut to him and and other characters tell you about the serial killer stuff. But overall, I've, I was pretty underwhelmed with this character because I didn't find him intimidating when he was on screen. And I just felt like I didn't know him by the time we got to the point where Dream takes him out of the show. I think the main thing I agree with is I just wish, like, why is, I'm sure it's explained way better in the comic, but why is the Corinthian dreams, like, greatest creation? I'm not saying he isn't. I just don't, I don't know why. <laughs> I think they mention it once, like, again, it's like part of, like, the dialogue being confusing. I think in, like, the last episode, Dream calls him, like, 
the dark mirror that is supposed to show humanity their fears in a way that makes them want to be better or something like that. And somehow the Corinthian kind of co-opted that to he's just going to kill humans instead. And in the wrap up of episode nine, Dream kind of puts out there that because the Corinthian was on Earth for so long, he's the one that created serial killers. Right. But they didn't do a good job of explaining that like leap either, because where they're not serial killers before the 1900s until the Corinthian is on Earth, like all that was very confusing to me. Yeah, I, I, I. I feel like I misread that, but I, I wasn't sure how long the Corinthian had been on Earth because they make passes like, oh, are you named after the guy in the Bible? And so it's like, oh, are they saying that he's been around since that long? But I just didn't know. And I felt like I missed that. And for everything we learn about Dream in this season, did it feel weird to you that his like ultimate creation that he's the most proud of was a nightmare? I like that on paper. I mean, that sounds pretty cool. The idea of Dream, this character, that his role is to in kind of equal measure, create and monitor both dreams and nightmares. The idea of like what he considers at least to be his greatest and most proud creation is a nightmare is kind of cool. But again, like as we've already said, I just wish like why? Why is it that it had to be a nightmare? Was that dream trying to kind of like prove himself in some way that like maybe he could make a nightmare like his greatest creation? I don't know. There just wasn't enough of it. And I I will be honest, I, I did kind of laugh in the final episode whenever it's, it actually kind of feels like the, the one thing I will say about the Corinthian is I felt like he had a smart plan and I was kind of engaged watching his plan play out the way he's going to use Jed Walker to get to Rose Walker. And then there's this great scene where like the, the barriers between dreams and the waking world are coming down and it's like the Corinthian and dream are arguing over Rose Walker. And then she literally just goes, you know what? I'm going to make my own path. The walls go back up and the walls go back up. The Corinthian looks like, oh, shit. And then the next thing, he's immediately killed by Dream. It's like, wow, what a quick, like, I guess his plan didn't work. And then he's just immediately taken out of the show with like 45 minutes left of the episode. And that's the same thing they do with John. Yeah. Very, very odd. Um, really like the overall story, but there were some really bizarre choices <laughs> when it came to elements of it. So I guess, you know, we've talked a lot about now about kind of the overall story, the first half, the second half, how they feel very different from each other. but. Let's talk a little bit more about our main character, Dream. You mentioned it a little bit, kind of the character arc that we felt he had, but just overall, uh, from a top-level perspective, what did we think of this character? Did it work? Did his motivations always feel like we could track them? All that good stuff. I just felt like he was so interesting in this show. I always wanted to learn more about him. I like that he kind of plays the role of tour guide for the audience, of, of taking you through all these different realms and explaining kind of the rules of the world. I really liked his narration in episode one thought it was a really good way to get into this character's head and, and see how he thinks and how he is considering taking a deal with Burgess just to get out and, and understanding what he's contemplating in his head. And then I like that he is kind of a stickler for the rules and those rules kind of bend as he gets more um, integrated with humanity and gets to meet more people who aren't all like the Burgess character. So the way he kind of softens throughout the season, I thought was very well done and, and felt very earned for the character. Yeah, and I do like he has his own agency, for better or worse. Like, he isn't bound by some code that he has to, like, follow, you know, dreams or nightmares or whatever. Like, he, he can kind of do his own thing. And I think they did a great job of, like, making the choice in episode one to have him kill Alex Burgess, you know, the, the, the young boy that ultimately, on his father's, his abusive father's orders, killed Dream's Raven. Um, and then, you know, he grows up to be an old man and then Dream finally escapes and he kills him for that. You know, it's not like there, there's no sympathy or empathy. He's not like, I know your father, you know, abused you and forced you to make that choice. I know you felt bad about it. I'm just going to kill you because you killed my raven. And it's like, oh, OK. So it's, it's, I thought it was a good choice to do that in the first episode because then there was room for the character to grow, so to speak. And we could kind of follow him soften, like you said. And I think the best example of that, like we already mentioned, was after he kind of, I guess, you know, makes his first friend in episode six, there is a very clear change in the second storyline after that, where he is a bit more, I think, willing to, you know, talk with humans and work with them and try and help them with the Rose Walker character. Um, so, yeah, I, I liked it as well. I wasn't always sure, like, whenever he's talking with Vivian, for example, about, like, all the rules and how, like, the, the dreaming works. Like, I didn't follow all of it, but I thought it worked enough for the most part that I could at least track the character's motivations. And I agree with you. I think the best thing I can say is just he was just really interesting. And narration is always hit or miss in shows and movies. And this one I thought was a great example of how to do it right. 
I also did like his interactions with his creations. Like he does feel like their boss, their master, and um, he does feel more in control when he's in the dreaming world versus he feels more of kind of like an explorer when he's actually on Earth and interacting with humanity. Also with Dream, it just feels like in every conversation with every character, because he certainly meets a lot of characters in this show, that there's a different interaction. It's not always the same. It's just, I don't know if you can attribute that to him trying to, I don't know, change himself or like see these people's dreams so he can find like the best way to talk to them. Maybe it's a little bit of that, but it just feels like he has different interactions with everybody, which is always fun from just like a a viewer perspective because it makes every conversation interesting. And that kind of reminded me, like, I know we talked about, like, all the performances that we liked, Austin, but I mean, who are the other, like, best characters, like the side characters that we haven't mentioned yet? Have have we missed anybody? I thought in the Rose story, uh, the character I was more interested in that story was the Lida Hall character. Mm -hmm. I thought her her grief dealing with the passage of her husband and and getting to see him again in the dreaming, that was the most compelling part of that story to me. And and I was hoping she was going to play a larger role as as that storyline kind of went on. But she kind of gets diminished whenever the dreaming stuff gets taken away from her. That's true. That was that was kind of the more interesting stuff with the whole vortex angle. That like Rose Walker's existence kind of breaks down that wall, like we said, between dreams and the real world. So like Lyda Hall is having sex with her, you know, husband who died in a dream and now she's pregnant in real life. Like that was like a really fascinating element, which then I liked because that tied back to the desire unity plot which i'm glad they didn't leave that hanging um and i want to know who that child is because dream says i'm going to come for that later since it was created in the dreaming i mean that's a pretty big thing i thought that was pretty interesting i mean i don't know like i said we did see dream grow but he is kind of i guess i mean i guess i'm going against my own point i already said that dream has agency in this show which i liked but i guess there there are like rules that are so important i guess to the endless that they have to follow them so like dream very nonchalantly is just like yeah that kid's mine you can have him for now but i have to come for him later because he was born in the dreaming so he literally yeah the verbiage he uses is he's mine it's like whoa (laughs) so were there any characters from the dreaming that you wanted more of did anybody stand out there to you I really liked all the characters in The Dreaming. Did I need any more of them? I don't know. I thought Lucienne was really good. I liked the back and forth with Dream as well there, where it's like she kind of became the, not ruler necessarily, but she was the person in charge while he was captured. So it's like this interesting dynamic of once he comes back and he just wants to treat her like the librarian role that she always had had, when in reality she kind of feels like she's gone through this big change and she should have more of a role. She's not trying to usurp him or anything, but... By the end of the show, they come to terms with that and they become more, I don't know, maybe like more friends or more colleagues because clearly in like the final episode, the relationship they have is very different and they're actually working together and they're going to, you know, do all the stuff in the dreaming with each other. It's not just a dream telling her what to do. So I like that. Uh, And then, yeah, the only other ones that I can really think of off the top of my head, I didn't really need any more of Cain and Abel, but I really liked Cain and Abel. Like I mentioned at the top, it just reminded me of how Lucifer, the show, always handled the religious elements. It's like, oh, just like kind of nonchalantly, they just introduce, oh, here's Cain and Abel, and here's their relationship. And I liked how this show did it, too. It's like, at first, it seems like a really normal relationship, and then all of a sudden, you know, you have to remember, oh, yeah, this is technically the first murderer and the first victim, so they do play around with that, too. So they weren't in it a whole lot. Honestly, they're probably just more comic relief than anything, but I really enjoyed them. I was surprised how much they screen time they gave to them at the beginning of the show and then they do kind of exit it like everybody else in the show i thought for sure that gargoyle was going to come back in a meaningful way just because they spent a lot of time like naming him and talked about how important he was to Cain and abel yeah again it kind of goes with a lot of the stuff with this show it's just they're trying to tell these individual stories and it's sometimes that's really cool but other times it doesn't really fulfill or add too much to the overall narrative so that's probably another example it's like yeah they were kind of top heavy so I thought they were going to be in it way more, and then they probably just had like one or two scenes throughout the rest. So is what it is. I felt the same way. I mean, I, I feel like there's going to be like an infinite number of characters we can say the same thing about, but also got to shout out Death. Really love Death in that uh, sixth episode as well. Uh, only episode we ever see them in, but I thought it was important because up until that point in the show, they kept hitting on how, you know, Dream doesn't really have a good relationship with his siblings. It's why he never reached out to them um, whenever he was captured. 
And then, you know, whenever we see desire and despair, that kind of makes sense. But then, you know, we, we meet Death and it's like, oh, yeah, he was just being stubborn and kind of an idiot. Like she calls him out on it. So and, and it's just like a fun little, you know, play on your expectations. Like whenever you hear of characters like dream and destruction and despair and desire, it's like, oh, I, I mean, that could go either way. But whenever you hear about death, it's like, oh, that character is going to be really unsavory. And it turns out she's like the most probably nice of all of them the one that loves her she was weirdly heartwarming yeah she was weirdly heartwarming for like someone who is ferrying souls away to the afterlife and obviously every time mortals interact with her it's for the most part tragic but the way kirby howell baptiste played that character she was very endearing and and actually i i really want to see more of her i thought she i thought her and dreams dynamic was was great um another one that i don't think is a sibling but is just another powerful being was of course lucifer morningstar that's Another big character to have in this show. I thought that episode was really interesting. I liked their duel, and I like that. It seems like they're setting her up to play a larger role in season two with the kind of armies of hell wanting to expand their territory, as they put it. Yeah, the thing that's, the thing that's always cool with Lucifer um, that they play on with like the religious history, or however you want to call it that. I know using the word history is an odd one to use, but you know what I mean. Um, is like Lucifer is the ruler of hell, but I like Gaiman's version in both this and the sh- and the show Lucifer that that doesn't make them evil, you know. It's just that that's their role. And we talk about dream and death and everyone else like they have a role to play and Lucifer just happens to be running hell and there's always this really kind of chip on Lucifer's shoulder which is just like they felt that God was you know, not doing the right thing. So they led a revolt against God. Um, they were God's favorite child, and then they were struck out of heaven for rebelling, and then they were tasked with running hell in the meantime. So Lucifer always is like, you know, trying to prove them wrong. And I like that. I like that with all the endless and Lucifer, who's not endless, but kind of that same ethereal, immortal being. It's like, while they are, I don't know, like, they think that they're bigger than humanity, but in reality, they still feel the same things that mortal beings do. You know, like Lucifer feels like they've been jaded by their father and like they're kind of projecting that hate onto Dream for no real reason. But clearly it's going to play out in an interesting way. I'm I'm curious as somebody that loves the show, Lucifer, like how big of a role will Lucifer have in this show going forward? I don't know. Like I'm used to a show where they're the main character, like is there a future season or storyline where like dream and them go up against each other or like, do they become more of a good person, so to speak? Like does dream help them reconcile with God? I don't know. I have no idea what they're going to do. I'm just excited to see more. And I like the cliffhanger at the end. Yeah. I wonder if there's going to be kind of a push and pull between the Dukes of hell that want to invade and then Lucifer's own motivations. Cause the, that one Duke that came to speak to Lucifer at the end did say, we first invade the dreaming then we invade the mortal world, and then we um, invade heaven, essentially. So they have the, the Dukes of Hell clearly are leaning more towards the evil side of, of the Hell aspect. Um, I, I'm, Lucifer didn't seem super interested in their plan. It seemed like she just wanted to appease the Dukes and, and give them what maybe like a piece of what they're wanting for or something. So I'm curious to see how that relationship is going to play out in season two. Another thing with Hell is I thought the best visuals in the show were was the hell design. Um, that was my favorite thing is seeing that. It was very unique, like seeing the people carrying their own fire through hell, I thought was a nice touch. The way the actual palace in hell was like dark and spooky, but still had kind of some beautiful elements to it. Um, overall, how did you feel about the visuals in the show? Because it is very kind of mystical and, and otherworldly at, at times. I liked it too. I think just from like an overview perspective as well, it was really nice you know, to see that Netflix cared enough to put budget behind this show because they could have treated it like a lot of their other ones. I mean, this definitely feels way higher budget than a lot of Netflix originals. Um, there, of course, there's some iffy moments here and there. I thought in particular there was a couple green screen moments where you can just tell characters are on a green screen. But really, other than that, like the way like these um, worlds looked, I thought was just fantastic. They all felt different. They felt distinct. So whenever characters would talk about them and then we would end up going there later, it felt like there was more impact. Like listening to Dream talk about hell in general and then to go there in episode four was really cool and it kind of hit you. It's like, oh yeah, I kind of, uh, I feel more because of how the characters talked about that. 
And then just from like, I don't know, like I'm a fan of seeing things different than what you expect. I think hell, they could have just made completely on fire. But I like that it's just kind of like, I don't know, it's just kind of this like empty feeling plane. And in the middle of that, you do have like Lucifer's palace, which does have kind of that fire and that imagery that you expect. But everything else is kind of different. Like, you know, he just walks by like a jail cell at one point and it's like, oh, yeah, that's my old lover that I put here for thousands of years. Like, whoa, what? <laughs> so <laughs> There's like a forest with souls trapped in the trees and stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was cool. That was cool. I really liked that. I liked how the dreaming looked. I thought that palace was super cool. I loved desires, like super weird, like statue of themselves, which was like their home, which was really cool. Like the, the inside of that with all the red and it looks like like the inside of a heart, so to speak, was like really just visually stunning. So yeah, honestly, all the visuals really worked for me. Like I said, a couple of green screen moments here and there, but for the most part, I thought the show looked great. Another one I really liked in the dreaming was when you go to the pier, so to speak, and the ocean in this realm is like everyone's dreams. thought that looked really cool. The way it's like starry and kind of dark. Yeah, that was really cool. I like I never understood fully like how characters like were transitioning from the dreaming to the waking world. Like at one point, Matthew the Raven like flies into a painting like that has like this beautiful sky. Then the sky turns into the real sky. And I was like, oh, that was really cool. Same thing with Dream at the Pier. I liked how he just like kind of like Moses style opens the water and just walks down a staircase. And then we just see him in the waking world. It's I kind of like that. It seems like you can kind of exit the dreaming in any way. It feels like kind of that weird feeling dreams give you of like there's no transition between parts of your dreams to another. You just end up somewhere else. <laughs> I kind of felt like this show played with that a little bit too. Going back to the story again, I know we're kind of all over the place, but I did want to hit more on that. Like we talked about how the John D storyline we felt was a bit more interesting than the Rose Walker storyline, but I did want to give some time to the Rose Walker story because I felt I feel like for most of this, we've just been saying that we didn't like it as much. But let's dive into it a little bit. I mean, what were the takeaways? I mean, did you what did you like about it? What made it less interesting to you? I don't know. I don't think we've actually hit on that yet. Like, why was this one not quite as good in your eyes? I think the main reason I found it less interesting is I felt like the John D story had just more stakes in it because David Lewis and his performance was so commanding and scary. And Rose Walker, for the most part, is kind of a passenger like she doesn't she didn't choose to be the vortex whereas john d is actively choosing to go up against dream i also felt like the way the first half of the show goes from dream being imprisoned to then john's mother taking his um tools and then that gets passed down to john like all that felt a lot more organic and like a more cohesive story and then when that wraps up and then we're introduced to rose's story the performances were always great and the characters are interesting but that story just doesn't feel as well ingrained in the broader season that it did always kind of feel a little jarring that this was the main driving force for the second half of the season. Yeah, I think it just suffered almost because it came second in a weird way. I feel like if this was the first one, we probably would have liked it just as much as the John D storyline. But yeah, it was just some it was really limited uh, threads that were kind of connecting it. Like, I don't know if you how much you picked up on, but I liked that in the fifth episode when I think the character was Judy is uh, calling her friend to try and find out where her uh, girlfriend is that she got in a fight with. The person she's FaceTiming with is Rose Walker. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. That's kind of fun. And then um, I really liked how later they introduced that Unity, her great-grandmother, was the girl they just showed with a sleeping sickness in the first episode. It was like, oh, okay. That's kind of fun. So there was some some really fun, like, little just connective tissue moments like that, but it just it never felt fully connected to the overall story other than the the moments that we already referenced it's just like yeah there's some kind of symbolic and great character moments where like dream feels a bit more connected to rose walker and a bit more like i said i i hesitate to use the word friendly but he just feels more sympathetic and empathetic to everybody i think because of what he went through in the john d storyline and with meeting you know his friend in episode six but yeah i don't know i can't quite put my finger on it there was just there was a lot that I found interesting by it, but in those last few episodes, I was kind of rolling my eyes at times like, Ugh, are we really spending more time with this? Like, I know you yeah. said you liked the Light of Hall storyline, and I did too, but still, it's like whenever they cut back to her in the same dream, just like having sex with her husband again, it's like, yeah, okay, I get it. Like, it's interesting. Like, It didn't feel like it hit like a great moment until Dream finally came into that storyline. So I don't know, maybe I like that Dream felt more involved with the first half of this season. And maybe in the second half, it's like Rose Walker and some of that ensemble cast got a lot more screen time 
without him, which is cool. But maybe maybe now that I'm saying it out loud, maybe that's what didn't work as well. I like those characters, but it just I don't know. I felt like in that second half, there was just so many moments where I was like, "Okay, yeah, just got to get through this. We're spending a lot of time on these, you know, on these random moments. So I liked it, just didn't love it. I'm glad you called out that some of those connective threads are there, Um, but they are kind of like you blink and you miss it. They don't spend a lot of time like really threading it into the, the first half of the season. And I think another reason why the first half worked better for me is that story itself feels much more adult and more mature than the second half does. Like maybe it's just the way the characters were in the second half, but that did feel a little bit more, I don't want to say childish, but it did feel a bit more like age down and it felt like it just didn't seem, just didn't seem to be as important. And like I'm a vortex and the the dream walls are going to collide. Like none of that felt as dangerous as this guy who has physically has one of dreams tools and you can see the damage he's wreaking just on this tiny diner and you and you also get little bits and pieces of how it's impacting the broader world i think that just felt a lot more important in the first half than the vortex did yeah just with the vortex storyline there was just a lot of they were telling us but they weren't showing us anything whereas i know you and i clearly feel the same way episode five of this uh was pretty spectacular they showed us exactly what john d was capable of with his kind of mutated dream amulet uh the ruby and what that led to and like we kind of we figured out what his motivation was he does truly want to save the world and he thinks that lying in any form is terrible but he doesn't realize that he's actually taking away people's what their dreams as dream says and there's kind of like an interesting dichotomy and like uh, relationship between dreams and lies which i love that they actually talked about in this show and that's what was driving these people and letting them live their lives to a somewhat satisfying degree. And John D took that away to the point where they all killed themselves. Um, whereas the Vortex storyline, they just told us that the Vortex is really bad. And then at one point, there's a dream where Rose is like, I guess she's the one dreaming and all of her friends from the house come in and they all fall into a Vortex. And I thought that was like them all dying. I was like, oh, Me shit. Too. So this is what. And then Dream just says they're safe in bed. Yeah. He's like, oh, they're asleep in their beds. I was like, what? Oh, OK. Like they literally showed a vortex. So I was like, oh, this is like why they call them the vortex, because whenever the walls between the dreaming and like the waking world come down, this is what happens. And yeah, so the stakes, you're right. They were kind of all over the place in uh, that second half. And also, I think you made a great point that. While the second half still had a lot of adult, you know, themes and storylines going on, it was handled in a bit more of a childish way at times. And that's not always bad. For example, like the fact that Jed was being abused by these foster parents and like he's having almost these comical dreams at night uh, where he's like the superhero. He's protecting his biological mother. Like that was, you know, it's a childish thing because he is a child and that was very powerful. Like that's how he escapes from like the waking world that is abusing him. But then there's also some weird things where it's like, oh, the Corinthians finally back in this storyline and he's been asked to be the guest of honor at a serial convention, which is just like a ruse for like, a serial killer convention, which is funny. I, I, I got a kick out of that. It was like a, a funny concept, but it was still extremely dark and violent. They just treated it in a bit more of a goofy kind of way, which they didn't in the first half. So that kind of stuck out to me too. It felt like they were trying to be a lot more comical in the second half, too. And a lot of those jokes, I don't think, landed. Like like you said, the serial killer convention thing is objectively funny that they called it a serial convention. But that like sense of humor, I felt like didn't fit the tone of the rest of the show. Because up until that point, it had been very serious and very dark. So some of the stuff I felt, some of the stuff I felt just felt a little out of place in the context of season one of the show. It might have worked better in the actual um comic book like maybe maybe this does fit in a lot better but in this in this season i don't think it fit very well yeah that's what i mean i mean comics just are a different medium like i bet if we like both like went and read the first uh like graphic novel like the volume of sandman which covers like uh i believe the his captivity i think we'd finish i'd be like okay cool and then you know at a later date we could get the second one which covers uh, I think it's called The Dollhouse, which is the Rose Walker storyline. It's just different. I can't explain it. I know, like, individual issues of comics and, like, seasons of TV are similar in concept, but I've always felt different. Like, I can read one issue of a comic, and then I can read the next graphic novel, and it can be a different storyline, different tone, but it works. Whereas here, they try to do two different ones that are very different in one season of TV, and, like, they just weren't able to fully transition between them to the point where... 
like I said, one of the, the biggest shames is it, this season left a bad taste in my mouth because they ended with that. It wasn't terrible, but it just, you know, the first half I thought was so much better personally. And I think, too, when you when you read comics, villains don't always need to have a big presence in a comic book panel. You spend a lot more time with your heroes, and then the villains do typically come back in at the end. But that doesn't always work in a TV show because we need more time to understand our villains, understand their motivations. And I'm sure it works great with Desire in a comic book panel where they come in, they say their piece, and then they exit. But that is what they didn't. They did the same type of format in the show, and it didn't work as like a cohesive villain motivation story when it was actually like on TV. Yeah. Yeah. With the Desire stuff, I was just left wondering why episodes five and six, I think it was, ended with a quick shot of them just like, you know, saying, here's my plan to take down Dream. And then, like, you know, the see, like we said, the season just ends with Dream confronting them and like saying, don't fuck with me. And they're like, Oh, but I will next time. Like, so why? Do, yeah, I mean, that, that would have been a perfect setup for season two. But why did we like plant seeds earlier? It was just, I don't know, just kind of goofy. But, you know, like I said, I, I want to make sure I say this was not bad by any means. I still really enjoyed it. There was just like the critics said, this is one of those times where I find myself agreeing with them. Just like the way they paced the story was kind of odd because it felt like they were literally like a verbatim trying to adapt a comic book into a TV show. And you can't do that. You have to tell like a cohesive storyline with a uh, television show or comics like they have a bit more, I think, freedom in how they tell a story. So it didn't always work that kind of like short story, like anthology feeling that we were talking about here. I do have a lot of high hopes for season two, though, because this has been a hit for Netflix. I think they're going to get an even bigger budget. And I think they're going to hopefully take some of the feedback that they've gotten on this season and maybe expand the world a bit more and, and tell a more cohesive story instead of trying to do two separate stories in one season. Yeah. And, and like I said at the, at the beginning, even if they do feel like, hey, in our season two, we want to tell volumes, whatever it is, three, four or five, whichever ones they need to tackle. If they want to tackle two storylines. I'm cool with that. I just need a bit more of a better transition. That's all. And I hope they don't feel like they have to adapt exactly what happens in the comic book. Like they can take some freedoms if it means making the television story work for the medium of TV. So we'll see. But I do agree with you. I think they're going to get a bigger budget. They're probably going to get some, I don't know, bigger names in for these like small like episode roles that like like one episode appearances type things. But yeah, I mean, just in general, I mean, what do you hope? Like, do you think Desire? Again, this is going to be from somebody that hasn't read the comics, so I don't know what's supposed to happen after this. It just it feels like Desire is probably being set up to be the main villain. Um, I would also expect that we see Joanna Constantine and we see Hob Gadling show up for at least one episode again. I don't know how big of a role, but that's how I feel right now. I mean, it seems like Desire is the main villain. That was literally like the last moments of the episode. Do you agree with me? What do you think we're going to get in season two? What I think we're going to get is... I think we're going to get Lucifer and Desire teaming up because okay. that was who they gave screen time That's to true. at the end. That's I true. think Lucifer is going to realize that one of Desi that one of Dream's siblings is trying to go against him. That's how they're going to put their plan together to try and invade the Dreaming. So I think those two will be kind of sharing the villain spotlight in season two. What I hope for is I hope Constantine has a, a way larger role in the, in season two. I would I would honestly be happy if she was almost like uh, the second lead in the show. Like that's how good I thought the performance was. And then as for Hob Gatling, I hope we see him again, but I don't know how they would do like another full episode for him because they have kind of told his full story in this season. So I really like the performance. I thought it was great. I hope we get to see him, but I hope they don't give too much time to trying to recreate that same moment from season one. Yeah, it would be nice if maybe like if Dream gets, you know, he feels defeated at some point in the series. It might be cool if he meets up with Hob Gatling to kind of get like maybe like a pep talk to maybe help him halfway through the season, you know, feel like he can do what he needs to do. I think that's a good point. And it's also something I really liked. Um, and again, I feel like I'm taking a lot of my experience with the show Lucifer into this show. I'm trying not to, but it's hard. But it was really cool seeing uh, Dream and Lucifer do that battle and like Lucifer knowing their backstory. Yeah. And like knowing Lucifer's backstory with God, like the idea of hope to her is completely unbeatable. I really like that. I think you could tie that in in season two, the idea of desire teaming up with Lucifer and kind of, I don't know, like planting seeds and preying on what Lucifer wants, which is Lucifer doesn't give a shit about the waking world or hell. All Lucifer wants is to, you know, stick it to God and get back into the silver city, as she calls it, heaven. So I think desire could actually be a pretty formidable, like 
manipulative force to kind of uh, steer Lucifer in the wrong direction. So I think that's a good call. I hope we do see that as well. I do like the idea if there is an invasion of the dreaming. I do really like the idea of like a full scale battle between demons of hell and dreams and nightmares coming like going at it. I think that could be just a really cool visual scene. Yeah, that could be cool because I don't think Dream is trying to build an army by any means, but we are seeing that Dream is being viewed as perhaps like a more, I don't know, like benevolent, benevolent ruler. I liked one of those final scenes where he turned Galt from a nightmare into a dream. Uh, I thought that was a really sweet scene because Galt, even though they were a nightmare, they weren't wrong in what they were trying to do, um, which was protect a kid that was being abused. So I like that, you know, Dream felt that that was the right move. So it'll be curious what roles characters like that would have. And also they did, I'm curious, this could be something they do in season three or later, but I mean, they do specifically call out in that same scene that Dream does want to recreate the Corinthian, but just do a better job. Do you think whenever they do that, like it'll be Boyd Holbrook again, or will it be a different actor? What do you expect from the Corinthian going forward? Because I know you didn't love it quite as much as maybe I did. I think I liked him a little bit more. Yeah, I was so underwhelmed with this character in this season that when they called that out, I was like, ugh, I don't want to go through this again. I, if they flesh him out more and, and make it more important to the story, then I'm I'm here for it and interested in it. I think it will be the same actor um, just because he gave such a good performance. And I think it could be interesting if it's the same character, if uh, Dream recreates them, because we saw him recreate Galt and Galt still had their memories of, of when they were a nightmare. Yeah, that's true. So if he recreates Corinthian and, and they have those memories, and that could be a really interesting relationship of like Corinthian being given a second chance to earn his place in Dream's world. Yeah, for sure. I, I, that's a good point. I really like that. Like they didn't take away. It's not like he just recreated Galt from scratch. Like there was still some humanity there and left uh, those memories. So I, be, I think you're right. I think they would do the same thing. Will we see God at any point in this show? We did in Lucifer. And the casting was pretty incredible. I don't know if they could, I don't know. I don't know if they could beat the casting they did in that. But you know what, Austin, that's a, that's a great question. I think it's possible we see God in this show. And if we see God, we got to talk about it now. Who will play that? I have three I think I would, I would, Whoa, three. I have three I think would be really good. Okay. Um, Helen Mirren, <sighs> Morgan Freeman, okay. or Russell Crowe. I like all those ideas. Whew. I think out of all of those, I think the Helen Mirren one got me the most excited. I like that. I think we've already seen Morgan Freeman play God in like Bruce, in Bruce Almighty, Almighty or something, though. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So scratch that one. <laughs> it's a return to form. I'm trying to think of somebody that isn't like an old, old person, just because I feel like that would be too expected. I don't know why Chiwetella Giafor is coming to mind. I don't know why that was the first person That'd that be good. popped in my head for some reason. <laughs> I feel like this person has been annoying you recently, but I also wouldn't mind seeing Taika Waititi play God. That would be funny. I feel like he thinks he is God in real life, Apparently, so he'd probably be good I mean, at it. He is Austin. I don't know if you know this, but he discovered Kate Bush. <laughs> he did. <laughs> did you know that? <laughs> That's his music. I was listening to a different Kate Bush album on the way to work this week, and I was actually getting annoyed. I was like, what the fuck was he talking about? Uh, she's actually my artist. I, you know, she grew up in my time. Like, what are you doing? You're an idiot. Oh, <laughs> uh, but we'll see. I think we will see God eventually. It just depends on how much Lucifer is in this show. If we get any time with them, then I think God might pop up eventually. But who knows? Who knows? All righty. Well, before we close out here, we're going to do our Arnie's Podcast Awards, the part of our show where we just shout out something that we want to award, can be positive, can be negative, or anything in between, just something that we feel deserves specific praise. So, Austin, what are you thinking? Yeah, I'm going to give the uh, Tummies a Rumbling Award. Um, I know episode five was terrifying in that diner, but everything they were serving up looked delicious. It made me crave some diner food. Um, I think Desire was really working their magic on me in that episode. Yeah, that double-decker looked pretty incredible, I gotta say. It's amazing. <laughs> Even that salad looked good. Even the sa you're right, the salad did look good. <laughs> I'm going to give the biggest lesson award. And as much as we love Hob Gadling, the scene where he and Dream sit down, I think, in the 1700s, and he's just talking about how he's in the slave trade, and Dream is just like, hey, man, not a good idea. <laughs> and he's like, why? <laughs> everybody's doing it and he's like you shouldn't imprison people and he's like oh okay yeah i think i should think about that 
Just like, yeah, very nonchalantly. Hey, man, slavery, not good. So biggest lesson goes to our boy, Ha, because he's a cool guy, but that wasn't pretty. That wasn't cool. <laughs> and he came, out, he came out of it on the other end. They had a missed opportunity in that scene for a dream to be like, if everybody jumped off a cliff, would you do it? And then that could be the origin of that saying, his dream teaching him the lesson. That would have been cool. Neil. Neil. Are you listening? <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you, everybody, so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit that follow button so you never miss our upcoming content. Also, if you wouldn't mind sharing us with a friend, we really would appreciate that so we continue to grow our show. Please leave us reviews as well. Even if you want to write anything, leaving us a five-star review over on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts it really does help us out. At The Arnie's is our social, and TheArnie's.media is the website. We'll be back on Tuesday for another episode. And just last week, there was a serial killer convention in this show. And just last week, we put out our thoughts on another uh, serial killer show from Apple TV called Blackbird. If you want to hear our thoughts on that, be sure to go check that episode out. And lastly, we do want to hear from you. So message us on Instagram at the Arnie's or email us the Arnie's media at gmail.com. What did you think of the Sandman? Have you read the comics? Will Tom Sturridge ever stop crying? I really want to know for his well-being. Anything you say, we'll read on the show and react to it live on the latest episode. All right, everybody. Hope you have a great week. Hope you sleep tight tonight. I uh, hope the Corinthian doesn't invade your dreams. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Oh, I just got really freaked out. Yeah. Let's end the podcast before I get too scared. Bye. Bye. <laughs>